Well, Phil, that was Danny Goldberg uh, from our era. Actually, he is he graduated from high school when I did, and uh, yeah. like you and like me, he's from the New York area. And I mean, that was quite a period of time. The book is focuses on 1967. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating. An eventful year. It. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I remember it, and, and I must say, uh, being in New Jersey, right outside of New York City, I mean, right across the river, I thought in terms of the hippie movement, we were a little bit behind California because when I was a junior or senior, a kid transferred in from uh, California, and he had bell bottoms and longer hair, and it was just starting to trend where we were. Maybe Brooklyn was way ahead of the game. I don't know. But uh, I was but we, in Manhattan that year. I was living in East Village, so I was in the heart of it. Totally, uh, in East Village. Yeah, for those people who didn't have the experience, going to Washington Square Park or Tompkins Park, for that matter, but Washington Square Park is a big place. On a weekend in 1967, and hearing people get up on soapboxes and speech, speak, and it really uh, blew a lot of minds. I mean, it it opened my thinking to all sorts of things. Good and bad, yeah. but it was amazing. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think Danny brought this out. There were different groups of people um, involved in what we think of as the counterculture. I mean, and then there were all the other young people who were, had nothing to do with the counterculture. There were probably more young Republicans in my school than, you know, hippies and SDS types. And, um, but, in the counterculture, there was, you know, this discontent with the uh, mainstream life, and it, it, it took different forms. So some people were really politically active and revolutionary or radical, and, and then others were uh, sort of in the drug culture and being hippies. And then there were uh, serious spiritual uh, seekers who were not wearing hippie regalia, or doing those things, but we're, you know, seeking. Right. And, you know, and I, I kind of overlapped with all three of those right. at certain points. Well, there, there was a, the, the big unifier during that period of time was everybody seemed to be against, the, a lot of young people against uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, they felt yeah. it was an unjust, immoral war. And also, people had a lot on the line. It was the draft back then. Everybody yeah, was I didn't ask, to go. We didn't ask Danny about the, the draft. Yeah. That would have been interesting because everybody has an interesting draft story. Exactly. And uh, if there was a draft today, I think there would be a lot more people on the streets protesting about a variety of things. People, people were bet. more connected, even though a lot of folks got out of the army uh, because of school, because of it seemed like people with more money and more influence were less likely to go in. And at that time, Definitely. there weren't a lot of people that wanted to go in. And uh, the, the other thing is, uh, there was a real distinction, I felt, and maybe this came around 67, after 67, but in that period, there were, there were two camps. There was the people that were into peace and love and knew, you know, the age of Aquarius kind of folks. And then there was the people that were hardcore militant revolutionaries. And yeah. there was a real, there was, and there was some, of course, there was some intermixing of the two and all, but that it, it, it got. It went from a beautiful kind of, uh, uh, you know, utopian kind of vision to a more harsh, hard kind of revolutionary vision for a lot of folks, and that was yeah. Uh, and was, that 
that mirrored the intensity of the war to a large extent. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, by by '67, uh, we started having the, all the images. Uh, I think the Gulf of Tonkin was the do- Gulf of made, Tonkin was, yeah. I think, before '67. No, it was. Yeah, it was around '60. I think I was so a it, freshman. It was or sophomore. It was around '64, '65. I think. But uh, all, yeah, I think you're right. Um, Anyway, yeah, it was an intense time, and I think that accelerated the spiritual seeking. Right. You know, at a, at a time when nothing makes sense, and people are suffering, and there's pain and anguish, and you're young, and you don't know what the hell to believe and what's, what's going on, you, you're more open. You right. start, either, either you close down completely and, you know, just sort of buy into whatever uh, ideology, yeah. Or you're more open. Right, that, that, that's so, what happened to me. I mean, you started meditation before me. I started not until 70, but it was during that period of time in 67 that I got into the whole peace and love vibe and all. And then uh, I, it looked like things were, that peace and love feeling was starting to dissipate. And I, I was looking for something else, and that's what... I uh, got me involved in meditation. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, now he's talking about sixty-seven. You, wh- when did you get involved in meditation? Because you started earlier. I well, I I got into it in earnest in uh, May of nineteen sixty-eight when I learned TM. But I had been experimenting prior to that, so I think I was reading books on Eastern philosophy and Vedanta, and Zen. I started trying to practice Zen mm-hmm. probably in 67. I, mean, I was, you know, just experimenting with all kinds of stuff. You know, um, one of the interesting things, we, we, we mentioned, you know, that August 24th of 1967 is when the Beatles met uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and started to meditate, and, you know, that was a very big deal. That was, mm-hmm. you know, that that put uh, Indian teachings and gurus and everything on the map worldwide. But prior to that, in June, you know, the Beatles had come out with um, Sgt. Pepper. And, you know, George's song, Within You, Without You, was on that. And that's... Sgt. Pepper was 67, right? Yes, June of 67. Mm -hmm. And I always think of Within You, Without You as the first rock and roll Upanishad. Because, right. you know, it's, it's all there, all of George's interest in Eastern philosophy. He had been to India. He had spent time with Ravi Shankar. He had read books. And so that was expressed in that. And he went to San Francisco in the Summer of Love. And that was a, a big deal because the Summer of Love started out all with, you know, this peace and love and flower in your hair kind of thing, but there were a lot of bad trips and a lot right. of casualties. There was, there, was a dark, there was a dark side to it yeah, as yeah. well, of course. But, but, but uh, and I have to say, uh, Sergeant Peppers, it's hard to, to describe to people who weren't living during that period how revolutionary, how mind-blowing that album was, how it really yeah. changed everything in, in certain ways. I mean, it really had a deep, deep impact on a lot of on a lot of folks, and uh, the other the other thing that uh, I wanted to mention that uh, 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 Danny mentioned in, in the interview was that if you were walking down the street back in '67 and you had long hair and you saw another guy with long hair, he was your brother 
or if you saw some <laughs> woman with, you know, uh, uh, whatever they were wearing back then, like a, you know, a, uh, a, a sloppily put on sari and, you know, a frizzy hair and whatever, uh, you know, with, with love beads, she was your sister. And it was really that, that, that camaraderie amongst that group of people. And on the other hand, if you went into the wrong town in the wrong place and you had oh, yeah. long hair and you were a guy, I got really hassled a few times. And I know guys well, that had worse stories than that. You know, even if you wore bell-bottom pants. And if you were in New York, it could change from one block to another. Exactly. You walk by the wrong construction site. But I didn't have long hair, hair then or a beard. Mm-hmm. That came later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why didn't I? Because I was driving a taxi in New York. And they nobody, wouldn't nobody let would get me. in with you. Yeah, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't let me. Right. The, the cab company wouldn't let me. <laughs> uh, I, I remember. Uh, I have a friend uh, who um, uh, he was on the. You know, he he actually lived in Ohio, and it was around sixty six, sixty seven. He was letting his hair grow long. And when I say long, not long by today's standard. You know, it was just right. coming over his ears, and you know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, he had to make a decision: cut your hair, get off the basketball team, and. You know, they were going to throw him out of school. It was huge. And his <laughs> hair was about as long as when the Beatles just became sort of M.O.D., mod, where it was like yeah. still pretty neat, but, but you know, longer. It was, I know. It's were, funny to think yeah. of that as being a big deal of long hair. Right. Um, you know, I wish we had asked Danny. Maybe we should have him back sometime. Uh, you know, Danny's been uh, in the music business you know, he's a high rank, a high level executive in, in, mm-hmm. the, in the music business for many years. And uh, so music is, is, he's knowledgeable and close to it. And the role of music in that era and in that transition is huge. You know, he mentioned, you know, Dylan and the Beatles and all that, but I would love to have heard him uh, talk a little bit more deeply about the uh, the impact of, of certain songs, of certain music. Certainly, we talked. Sergeant Pepper's was one, and and uh, but there was there were others as well that that, that sort of expanded right. people's right. minds. And well, well, I, think I remember you... listening to an album all the time in '67. I know it was '67 because I know where I was living then, and I can see myself listening to an old LP of an album called Music for Zen Meditation mm-hmm. by a great <laughs> jazz clarinetist called Tony Scott. And I used to listen to it all the time when I needed, you know, to some uh, to pretend I was meditating. Right. <laughs> I, th- I think Charles Lloyd, probably back in that period, was starting to do some really experimental stuff. And Paul Horn, the f- both flautists. Paul Horn He was, was uh, really yeah. revolved. Well, and Donovan... Uh, but but uh, well, that, but yeah, Donovan definitely. Paul a little later started doing that. You know, Paul was a TM teacher before you know any of this. Right. He was. I, I interviewed him but, on but my he, radio he made show. those. Um, he made albums with Ravi Shankar, right. and later he did the Inside Taj Mahal yeah. and other other. Yeah, albums. I I he's a tremendous person. I interviewed him a, a few years ago on my radio show, and then he's since passed away. But he was yeah. a, a real, in, really in the vanguard. He went to Manhattan School of Music, was a flautist, very traditionally trained, and, and really uh, uh, very, very influential uh, in New Age music. By, wish, by the way, I, you said, or he said, I, I don't remember if you or Danny said it, one of the Goldbergs on the 
air today said <laughs> that it, uh, I think it was that Timothy Leary said you don't know the '60s unless you yeah know the '50s. Danny said it. D- Danny, Danny said okay. it. And yeah. that is so true because the '50s, you know, there were songs like I mean, really number one songs like "How Much Is That Doggy in the Window," "Venus in Blue Jeans." It was all about teenage love, and then all of a sudden it went into these folk singers. And the you know the new Christy yep. Mitchells, Peter Paul and Mary. Then Dylan comes along, and they're singing about social protest and change. It was very, very profound and drastic to change. Now, yep. now you have a little bit of everything, uh, but at that time it was really, uh, uh, you know, it really knocked you hard, or it, it really had a huge impact on me. Uh, the when I started listening to uh, folk singers and and yeah. uh, uh, singing and and having messages in their song. Yep. And then rock and roll artists did the same, you know, uh, and that was a a huge thing. You know, when I do my Beatles presentations, um, the first song the band does is Nowhere Man. Um, Great song. And at first they only wanted to do it because they loved the harmony, (laughs) the Uh three-part harmony. But we found, you know, that it's a great way to open the show because it's considered the Beatles' first grown-up record. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, an existential crisis song. Right. And they made that in 1965. Wow. You know, it was like, what's the world all about? Was you that know, on Revolver no, or Rubber Soul? What was that? Rubber Soul. Great. No, wait. Yeah, Rubber Soul, I think. Those were, anyway. Yeah. But so anyway, there so. it is, 1967. All the young people listening in are thinking... Oh, these two old guys—they yeah. can't get past the six. Yeah, no, no. Uh, it was, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a special time. Uh, hey, hey, Phil, I just thought of a lyric from from the musical Hair. That uh, there's a line in one of the songs that says, "1967, what's so great about you?" And the, the and they, and then somebody really? says, "Well, 19." Yeah, I, I, I'll get that for you, and uh, <laughs> uh, we, we can talk about it off the air. But it was okay. Uh, it, it was. Uh, it, I look forward actually to reading the book. I, I've been traveling. Yeah. I was in Europe. I came back. I did not get the book. In search of the lost chord, 1967, and the hippie idea. Really looking forward to it. Uh, it okay. was an interesting. You'll have flashback. Yeah. Uh, hopefully not. All right. Till next time. <laughs> okay. Right, over and out.